0: (laughs) Ha ha ha! That is one big pile of shit. This could be it. We may be in some multiverse where I don't even exist. Don't knock rationalization. Where would we be without it? Yes, yes. Yes, without the use. To take them them out, take them down. Do your... uh, Do your stuff. Life, uh, finds a way.
1: Hello and welcome to episode 20 of The Complete Works, a deep dive into the career and films of actor Jeff Goldblum. My name is Mike Smith and joining me on this journey into the wondrous world of Goldblum is my friend, co-host and fellow Goldblum maniac.
2: Mike Scriccio. How are you doing today, Mike? I'm doing great. I'm very excited to talk about uh, the movie today. So it's, it's a great day to be doing Goldblum stuff.
1: Yeah, there you go. And we made it to episode 20. Who who would have thought yeah. we'd make it this far? Uh, I mean, we did it once for another podcast, but who could have thought that we'd do it again for
2: yeah. <laughs> a second time? Not me, honestly, but we succeeded. Yeah. We've done we, it, especially yeah. this this uh, this quickly. You know? Yes. Yeah. Because you used to be with the Nicolas Cage podcast. We would
1: do it every other week. Uh, but because of the pandemic, we've been able to get these Goldblum podcasts out uh, quicker. Than usual. So every week we've been doing these, which has been great. Uh, so there's one good thing to come out of the coronavirus pandemic <laughs> it's, the, <laughs> it's the fact that we've been able to pump out these Gold Bloom episodes. So uh, you're welcome, America, for that. Yes. <laughs> At least we got that, you know? Exactly. So we're flashing back to the year 1984. Uh, one year earlier, Return of the Jedi hit theaters, wrapping up the Star Wars movies for good. No one would ever make another one of those ever again. So <laughs> sci fi was in. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, studios were green lighting anything that had to do with outer space, aliens, adventure, something they could sell as a high concept blockbuster. At the same time, writer Earl Mack had been tinkering around with a unique character for years, half finishing about a dozen different screenplays featuring his exploits. Uh, The character and the stories combined elements of sci-fi, comedy, hard science, Westerns, James Bond movies, rock and roll, and more into one pretty insane dish. And when writer W.D. Richter needed a story for his directorial debut, he and producer Neil Canton decided to make the first movie developed by their new production company, Uh, It underwent many name changes during the development process, but finally one stuck. And it's the one we know today as The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension.
0: Evil, pure and simple from the Eighth Dimension. I'm not ready for this. So what? Big deal.
2: Great Buckaroo bonsai. a common great danger
0: confronts both our words. These are Martian names, John Webb, John Fat-Eating, John Icicle Boy. Martians? In New Jersey. Buckaroo, president's on line one, calling about is everything okay with the alien space club from planet 10, or should he just go ahead and destroy Russia? Tell him yes on one and no on two. Which was yes, destroy Russia or uh, number two? Forget about me! They'll never break me! Honey, get off the phone!
2: We're giving you a chance to save your planet. I'm out of my
0: missing circuit now!
1: All right. So what exactly is The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension other than the best title of all time? The better question <laughs> is, what isn't Buckaroo Banzai <laughs> across Correct. the eighth dimension? Uh, you know, we've joked, we've joked before when we do uh, like a Stefan from SNL voice and we say this movie has everything, right? <laughs> we've we've done that a few times, I think, over the past year or so. Just yeah. talking about like insane movies that we watch. I truly believe this is the movie that has <laughs> Everything. (laughs) (laughs) If you like a thing, it's probably in Buckaroo Banzai. I mean, just aliens, karate, rock music, huge ensemble cast of incredible character actors, over the top John Lithgow, a watermelon in a laboratory. Like, there's a lot of
2: stuff (laughs) going on with Buckaroo Banzai, right, Mike? Yeah, and that barely scratches the surface. So (laughs) basically, (laughs) you're going to like Buckaroo Banzai, I think just Pretty, every person well we like hope so Ronsai.
1: Yeah, it is. It is 100 percent insane that this yeah. movie was ever made. And I can only imagine it being the 80s. A lot of executives doing cocaine, may be, may have been involved. Who knows <laughs> <laughs> who, who can say uh, this is such a unique case, I think, of a studio and the filmmakers being all in on a completely original world uh, that could be pretty alienating to general audiences. And it was the movie bombed. Uh, it was a yeah. box office disaster. Uh, it actually reminds me a little bit of, uh, of Scott Pilgrim versus the world uh which is another movie with a huge cast of characters a very complicated world that expects you to just kind of follow along and also had a very disappointing box office return too so mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's that uh so how did buckaroo Banzai come about uh in the 70s wd richter who was the screenwriter for invasion of the body snatchers which we covered on this very podcast uh became a fan of a novel uh by earl mack and the two struck up a friendship over time Richter became deeply interested in a character that Mack had created in a 30 page treatment that was titled Find the Jet Car, said the president, a Buckaroo Banzai thriller. (laughs) (laughs) I would look at that on a bookshelf and immediately buy that novel. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, And there were a bunch more treatments and half finished scripts just like that. uh, That that Earl Mack had pretty much abandoned when his screenwriting career in Hollywood started to take off. Uh, He had actually written Martin Scorsese's New York, New York in 1977. uh, And they all had titles like that, like The Strange Case of Mr. Cigars or (laughs) Lepers from Saturn. Uh, (laughs) I'm in love with every single one of these. Right. (laughs) <laughs> like, I really want to find these like half finished scripts that he wrote way back in the day. Just like I'm sure they're like out there in like archives or whatever. I got to find Somewhere. these at some point. But uh, so Mac Rauch took elements from all of those scripts and used them to the- create the movie that we're discussing today. And Richter teamed up with producer Neil Canton, who would later produce the uh, Back to the Future movies. Uh, and they made it the very first film of their new production company. Uh, they teamed up with MGM. And after a delay, thanks to the 1981 writer's strike, they got to work on producing the movie. Uh, now, it was probably a mistake to make this the very first movie of their new production company, because again, movie bombed horribly, the production company dissolved immediately after this movie <laughs> came out. Oops. Uh, but of course, the reason we're talking about the movie today is because it features Jeff Goldblum as a new member of Buckaroo Banzai's crew, Dr. Sidney Zweibel, AKA New Jersey, another surgeon like Banzai who joins his band and then joins the fight against aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Just describing this movie sounds insane. And yeah. watching it is also <laughs> insane. Uh so Buck Banzai himself is played by Peter Weller, who at that point had been in a few things, but would receive his most well-known role about three years later with Robocop. Uh so he had this a couple of years before he got like the big role that actually made him like a well-known person. I'm not sure if Peter Weller is considered like a well-known actor among like the public, but he is Robocop, which is a pretty huge
2: movie. Yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of people might not know his name, but would at least recognize his face. Yeah, exactly. He's somebody
1: who's popped up as a character actor a lot in movies, especially since the 80s. He was in a Star Trek Into Darkness. Also, the uh, 2015 J.J. Abrams one, he kind of popped up in that one. Uh, I mentioned this at the end of our last episode of this podcast. But Peter Weller once came to my high school uh, because in addition to being an actor, he's also like an amateur historian. Uh, and he hosted like a History Channel TV series about like you know ancient tombs or something, whatever they air on History Channel. Yeah. Uh, I don't even remember what he was there to promote, but he came to my high school to do an assembly and teach us about history or whatever. But uh, and then afterwards there was like a Q and A, and every question was about RoboCop. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Whoops. and they would all be questions like, uh, who do you think would win to fight, RoboCop or the Terminator? Because we were a bunch <laughs> of like. 15-year-old <laughs> high school kids. Yeah. Uh but I actually set up the microphone for that uh for that assembly because I was in the, I was the sound guy at the school and uh, I called it RoboMic for the rest of the year. So <laughs> I'm very glad. Yeah. Uh, Now strap in because we've got a lot of names to get through as far as the cast of this movie goes. Uh, The villain of the movie is Dr. Emilio Lizardo, a.k.a. John Warfin, And he's played by John Lithgow, hamming it up like never before. Uh, And this was actually this was the same year that Footloose came out. So you have like two very different sides (laughs) of John Lithgow (laughs) happening at once, which is pretty wild. Uh, Buckaroo's love interest, Penny Pretty, is played by Ellen Barkin uh, just two years after her breakout role in Diner. Uh, Lithgow's main henchmen are Christopher Lloyd, Doc Brown himself as John Big Booty or Big Bootay, as he has to correct (laughs) throughout the movie. Uh, Dan Hedaya, who is a character actor, been in a bunch of things. He's the dad in uh, Clueless. He's also um, Carla's ex-husband on Cheers uh, as John Gomez and uh, Vincent Chiavelli, who is in Next Stop Greenwich Village in the background of a scene. That's Uh right. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, so kind of a gold bloomer union there. I don't think they have a scene together in this movie or in that movie, actually. But
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: it counts. But- but they are there. It counts. Uh, he plays John O'Connor. Uh, also weird that this movie came out the same year as the Terminator. Wow. <laughs> Considering there's a character named John O'Connor in this movie. Uh, other aliens in the movie include John Parker, who works with Banzai to take Lizardo down. Uh, he's played by Carl Lumley, uh, who is known for Alias and Cagney and Lacey. He's also on Supergirl. He plays Martian Manhunter's dad and, uh, John M doll who sends Banzai and his crew a message detailing the stakes of their mission. And she's played by Rosalind cash from the Omega man. She's a, Charlton Heston's love interest in that movie. Oh. Uh, yeah. Now, as far as Banzai's crew goes, well, you've got Goldblum, like we mentioned already. Uh, Banzai is in a band called Buckaroo Banzai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers. And th- that includes band members Perfect Tommy, Reno Nevada, Pecos, and Pinky Carruthers. Uh, and they're played by Lewis Smith, who was in The Final Terror, a movie that we saw at the... Uh- <laughs> Hudson Horror Show Marathon thing. Uh, yes, that's right. Yes, uh, he was in the final terror. He also has a role in Django Unchained. Pepe Sean plays Reno Nevada. Uh, he and he was in Scarface. And uh, real life musician Billy Vera actually plays Pinky Carruthers. Uh, plus, you've got uh, Professor Hikita, a scientist working with Bonsai to break through the eighth dimension. Uh, he's played by Robert Ito of Quincy Me and Falcon Crest. Uh, there's Rawhide, who sort of looks after Bonsai's lab. I think there's a lot of different jobs going on. Yeah, with characters in these movies, uh, but he's played by Clancy Brown, a.k.a. Mr. Krabs on SpongeBob <laughs> and then a uh, jazz musician Bill Henderson and uh, Damon Hines of the Lethal Weapon movies. He's Murtaugh's son. Uh, they're the father and son duo Casper and Scooter Lindley, uh, who are like Bonsai Cub Scouts, I guess, who answer the yeah. distress call. <laughs> And uh, Mrs. Johnson, who also looks after the lab, I think. Uh, she's played by Laura Harrington, uh, the female lead of Maximum Overdrive, uh, and also the older sister in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Uh, wow. But wait, there's more. <laughs> the U.S. Secretary of Defense ends up being a major obstacle for the crew. He's played by Matt Clark, who is the bartender in Back to the Future 3. Uh, the uh, President of the United States is played by Ronald Lacey, AKA Major Tote, the Nazi from Raiders of the Lost Ark.
2: <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Uh, I did not recognize that comedian
1: Yakov Smirnoff appears as (laughs) national security Advisor Smirnoff uh, to the president. Uh, So (laughs) Yakov Smirnoff, for those who aren't familiar, he's the the comedian that everybody like he's the guy with the thick Russian accent who comes out and says, you know, in Russia or (laughs) like, I'm trying to like think of something really stupid. Like in America, you eat dinner with fork in Soviet Russia. Fork eats you. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. You know, the, every joke he had would be something in that, like, variation. Yeah. Uh, and he plays the National Security Advisor, also named Smirnov. I think he's playing himself. And then uh, Jonathan Banks, Mike from Breaking Bad, uh, appears as a hospital guard that Lazardo kills, uh, which was a cool, like, uh, thing for me to see. And finally, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis does not appear in the movie, but she was supposed to. Yes. <laughs> Uh, she played Buckaroo Banzai's mom in a flashback uh, that was cut from the movie, but is present on the DVD release. You can actually see a photo of her in the movie at one point, too. Uh, so there's still more names, but we do got to get through this. So <laughs> the movie was written by Earl MacRae, uh, and it was the feature debut of director W.D. Richter, who only got to direct one more movie after this. Uh, 1991's sci-fi drama Late for Dinner, starring Peter Berg. Uh, but he'd still work as a writer on a number of different movies, including John Carpenter's Big Trouble in Little China, which is also, an insane movie that's crazy that that got made in the first place
2: (laughs) yeah you're right
1: so that's pretty wild Uh, so this movie had a budget of about 17 million dollars totally flopped at the box office killing that new production company pretty much dead in its tracks uh, it came in at just around 6.3 million dollars uh, The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the 8th dimension was released on August 15th 1984 and opened in 19th place at the box office <laughs> Jesus Christ uh, yeah and uh, if you weren't watching it you could have been seeing the movie that took number one at the box office that weekend in its first week of release which was Red Dawn Oof. yeah or the other big new release that weekend, the really great Hitchcock for Kids thriller Cloak and Dagger. Uh, also in the box office top 10 that weekend were movies like Ghostbusters, Conan the Destroyer, Purple Rain, The Karate Kid and Gremlins. So it was a pretty packed summer of 1984. <laughs> this movie had no chance. <laughs> yeah. I also look looking at that box office list. I was like, man, the audiences of 1984 had no idea how good they had it. Back then. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's an incredible lineup of movies right there. But all right, so the uh, the IMDb plot synopsis for the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension reads adventurer, brain surgeon, rock musician Buckaroo Banzai and his crime fighting team, the Hong Kong Cavaliers must stop evil alien invaders from the eighth dimension who are planning to conquer Earth. Uh, So, Mike, going into this movie, neither of us had seen Buckaroo Banzai before. Uh, I know it had been on my radar for a long time. I had wanted to see it forever. Actually, when Peter Weller came to my school, uh, I believe that was actually when I watched Robocop for the first time. I watched it like ahead of his coming up, coming to the school. And my plan was to also watch Buckaroo Banzai because that was like his other big like starring role. Uh, and I had taped it off of like a, you know, premium movie channel or something like that. And I was ready to watch it. And then I just never got around to it. Uh, Oops. And, and, you know, since then, like it's when I've always like, oh, yeah, I'm going to watch Buckaroo Banzai at some point. Never did finally had the chance to. For this podcast, so for you, I mean, was Buckaroo Banzai on your radar at all going into this uh, into this episode?
2: Um, Yeah, sort of just like, in a in a like cultural osmosis kind of way, like being in like geeky and nerdy circles like I had heard of this movie. I feel like I remember somebody involved in like, you know, the writing of Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like, you know, in the current like creative team uh, mentioning like in an interview being asked, like, what's your favorite D&D movie? Like, you know, like something that gives you that feeling of a Dungeons and Dragons campaign. And he said Buckaroo Banzai. And I was like, that's a sci fi movie. Like, I don't understand what any of that means. And having seen that, like, yeah, I get it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Basically feels exactly like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, where it's just this like group of basically superhero gods um, fighting off an alien invasion and saving the planet. And just wacky hijinks ensue and like literally wacky hijinks ensue in this movie. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, that, that was my kind of, uh, you know, idea going into it. And just goddamn, man, this movie is so much fun. I loved every second of this. <laughs> so, yeah, when I ask you what your overall thoughts in the movie are, that's basically that's the answer,
1: right? It's just it's it's a good time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Like this feels like the perfect cult midnight movie and not like it's just like. I can picture a bunch of just people like, you know, drinking at a midnight show of this and just having so much fun and, you know, laughing when the watermelon's there and with the weird fucking prosthetics and the weird way all the aliens walk and talk. And a a movie that like one of the main plot points is mispronouncing Big Bootay as Big Booty not like a joke a main plot point is mispronouncing <laughs> Big Booty or Big Bootay as Big Booty shouldn't probably work but it does man this movie just yeah. kn- it feels like it knows what it is even though uh if you watch the uh documentary like the behind the scenes stuff on the blu-ray that we have from Shout Factory they nobody had any idea what this movie was like while they were making it Peter Weller. Every time they talk to him, he's like, "I have no idea what this movie's about." Um, and uh, but I think like it shows that they were just like, it doesn't matter. It just was fun, and the movie is fun, uh, yeah. and they kind of like flying by the seat of their pants. And uh, first time directors, first time producers, first time you know big. Uh, You know, screenwriters and stuff like that. And it's just it's just a lot of fun, man. I uh, it's it might be a little bit too long. I think it's two hours or just under two hours or something for it to be like the perfect movie. But it's pretty close.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm pretty much right there with you. I had a really good time with this movie. I think it's just so unique and so weird. And something that could only really exist as a product of the 1980s, too. I think that's a big part of it. Uh, And yeah, I think you're right. I think it's a little bit shaggy; like it feels a little bit long. Uh, And I think for first time viewers, it does throw so much at you (laughs) that it's a little bit overwhelming. I think. Um, But I get why it's become a cult classic. uh, You know, since its release, actually, um, you know, looking into it, Siskel and Ebert reviewed this movie on their show uh, when it was released in 1984, and Gene Siskel even said like he didn't i don't think he liked the movie but he said like this will become like a big <laughs> Cults really in a few years. Like he said that like on the air. And uh man, he was right. because uh, it just has all the elements for that. You know, it has like just this big, huge ensemble cast and it has all these weird things that have going for it. Uh and so yeah, I think it's a it's a ton of fun. And I think it probably is even better the more you re-watch it. You know, I think like you were saying, this is a great midnight movie. One to, you know, get a few people over and like watch the movie, have a couple of beers or whatever and like do your thing. Uh and yeah, it's it's awesome. Uh Peter Weller, I think, is very solid in the movie, but John Lithgow, man. He's so much fun to watch. (laughs) Yeah. As Dr. Lizardo, which is, you know, Buckaroo Benzai is a great name. Dr. Lizardo, an incredible name, uh, too. Like everybody's name in this movie is terrific. Every, uh, <laughs> every single character. Pinky Carruthers. Come
2: on. Pinky,
1: yeah. Pinky Carruthers. Perfect Tommy. Uh, you know, uh, all that stuff. I just, I'm so on board with all that. Uh, and especially, you know, just the more evil Lithgow gets throughout the movie, like his, cause he's, his character is like this disgraced scientist who tried to break it to the eighth dimension 30 years ago. And when he did, it didn't work. And he like an alien made contact with him and it took over his mind, basically. Right. Right. Uh, and so like as the movie goes on, like the alien takes more and more over of Lithgo's mind. And like he starts his voice starts distorting and his more alien side starts coming through. Uh, he's like shouting a lot more. And it's it's really great. Uh, and yeah, I think um, what you said before, where like nobody involved had any idea what they were doing. Like that comes through in the movie. Like I, I didn't get <laughs> yeah. to watch the. Uh, like I didn't get to watch the documentary on the show factory ray yet. I do want to check that out. But uh, just watching the movie, I'm like, did any like I can't imagine anybody involved, like knew what they were doing. It almost feels like the original Star Wars, right? Where like everybody right. involved in Star Wars was like, is this going to work? Uh, <laughs> like, but but I think Star Wars had, you know, under George Lucas and it had, you know, it, like I feel like George Lucas had like a unifying vision for what he wanted. Star Wars to be like, he had a very specific idea of what that movie was going to be. And this movie, like the creators involved had like 15 different ideas of what they wanted this movie to be. Yeah,
2: (laughs) And they were like, let's do all of them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, even down to uh, the director talked about uh, the directors and director and producer talk about uh, getting the script and like those like starts and stops kind of thing uh, from the screenwriter where they would get like, you know, 20 pages and they would page one through 20 of a story and they would like, give some notes, give it back to the screenwriter and then a week later, he'd come back and it'd be a completely different page one through 20 of a completely different story. I <laughs> mean, um, I think you said they went through like 200 pages of stuff that just is not this movie. Like, he just kept wow. like, oh, well, actually, we're going to do yeah, like you said, like, uh, you know, whatever, something from Saturn instead. Uh, and eventually they were like, you got to just pick a story, man. And this is what we got. <laughs> And it's even that like you you can see the edges of a lot of stuff in this, but it's still so much fun.
1: Yes, it really feels like just a group of a group of friends got together. They made the most insane thing they possibly could. And and that's kind of what it it feels like a very like a do it yourself. Star Wars kind of thing where it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. Star Star Wars had like the big studio funding and like. This movie kind of did, too, with a much lower budget than Star Wars had. But, you know, it, it's very clear that, like, everybody involved is doing this for like for the first time and nobody's really sure what they're doing. They're kind of just feeling it out. Uh, yeah. and, it's, and it's kind of a bummer that it bombed so hard at the box office because, you know, based on this, I would have liked to see, like, W.D. Richter maybe try out to do other movies. And stuff. So, and I not know he directed one other, which I haven't seen. I've heard, like I looked into it a little bit. Seems like it got mixed reviews. I hadn't, I had never heard of it before, so I don't think it has the same like cultural impact that, uh, that Buckaroo Banzai has. Um yeah. but still it's just, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting to see like this movie come out and be like, whoa, like what do we even do with this? You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and like I, imagine, like, I imagine getting this as like an executive at universal and being like,
2: fuck. <laughs> yeah. There's actually a lot of <laughs> stories about, uh, I forget the guy's name beagleman i think might have been the producer or the like executive guy at the studio and yeah. he hated them wd richter like goes to great lengths to explain like the ways that he tried to sabotage the, the <laughs> stuff and like to the point where he limited the number of times that buckaroo Banzai can wear red glasses on screen because uh, like heroes <laughs> don't wear red glasses was like is like a thing that he talked about and and how like they just didn't know what to market it as and they tried to make it a kid's movie like they went to test screenings where it was like literally school bus like children really from middle, yeah and it failed obviously because it's this kind of weird heady sci-fi midnight movie type deal uh yeah and they were like ah forget it and they just kind of like dumped it out some weekend um this <laughs> is wild
1: see that that is wild especially because if i saw this as a kid i would fucking love this so much yeah. like i like i wish i had seen this movie when I was like 10, I think I would be all in on, uh, on Buckaroo Banzai because it is Maybe. also like, I think what I like about it, too, it's not like like you say, it's like heady sci fi stuff. And there is like, you know, it's dimension traveling and stuff, but it's also just like a really like wild adventure movie uh that, you know, doesn't really have like a ton of swear words or anything. And it's, you know, yeah. you kind of, it's it seems like just a really fun movie to show to kids. It's <laughs> kind of like can. Flash Gordon, but like post Indiana Jones. <laughs> Um, Yeah, with a mix of like everything else thrown in there, too. I mean, yeah, (laughs) you know, like one of my favorite elements of the movie is that Buckaroo Banzai is just in a rock band, like not like (laughs) Buckaroo Banzai is established in the opening crawl. Like like the opening crawl of the movie, it's like straight out of Star Wars. It's just like three paragraphs of text that like gives you the background. And literally, the opening crawl is like an entire movie on its own. It gives you like (laughs) this whole journey of self-discovery that buckaroo Banzai went on when his parents died, and he decided to become a martial arts master and also a brilliant neurosurgeon. Uh, And then like he's
2: so bored with neurosurgeon, he just decides to go to extra-dimensional travel.
1: Yes, and he's also in like a touring rock band that's very famous, you know. And like, you know, people around the world like tell exploits of the tales of Buckaroo Banzai. There's a Buckaroo Banzai video game that's showed in the movie. There's a comic book that Marvel produces in the movie.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This really does feel like the perfect comic book movie, just you know, 25 years too early, and not actually based on a comic
1: book. Uh, Yes. Yeah, it feels like if this came out in the current environment and had—I mean, if it had like some kind of Marvel tie-in, like people would be right. accepting of it. I think if it did come out today, it would probably still bomb if it was just like an original story. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, you know, like sort of in the same way as Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, which was based on a comic, uh, but it was a comic that like nobody except nerds knew about, so like no, <laughs> nobody yeah. cared about it. Uh, I think I feel like Buckaroo Banzai would probably come out today, maybe like be a little bit more polished because it would be like modern technology and stuff, but. Uh, it would probably still just completely bomb at the box office. Uh, but it has but it has been like referenced and stuff. Actually, Ready Player One makes a reference to Buckaroo Banzai, uh, like in the in the dialogue of the movie. Like, there's a bit in the movie. Uh, where they have to go to like some kind of dance or a ball or something. I saw the movie two years ago and I completely forget everything that happened in it. But mm-hmm. <laughs> but they have to go dressed as like their favorite pop uh, a character from their favorite movie, basically. And uh, the main character in the movie Wade, I think his name was, uh, he goes dresses Buckaroo Banzai, uh, <laughs> and then and and then like the girl that he's meeting there is like, hey, Buckaroo Banzai, I love that movie because Ready Player One's a movie where they have to point out every reference. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> just in case yeah exactly but uh yeah so that's 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 something you know it 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 has like its own cultural imprint among like a certain group of people uh so I think it's kind of cool
2: like like years later after it
1: bombed the box office this is a movie that still has legs
2: I guess you know which is always cool to see yeah I mean definitely for me like it's definitely going to be uh in the rotation of like showing this to people (laughs) that I know haven't seen it yet because I had so much fun with this movie. Definitely. All right. So but the reason we're talking about Buckaroo Banzai today
1: is, of course, because Jeff Goldblum is in the movie. So what did you think of Jeff Goldblum as Dr. Sidney Swibel slash New Jersey?
2: <laughs> um, I, it's the perfect Jeff Goldblum role, I think, honestly, yeah. um, where it's just this weird, quirky sensibility in this uh, in movie that is nothing but weird, quirky sensibilities. Uh, like, you know, you just. He fits in so well into the ensemble of very uh, distinct and like niche characters. You know, you have Clancy Brown as Rawhide, so he's kind of like the the like moral cowboy like rock of the group perfect Tommy yeah. is billy idol basically um right. you know and and here comes uh jeff goldblum with like you know trying to be roy rogers basically with his giant yep. uh chaps and the hat and the the flashy shirt and it, and he's just all of his performance and all of everything about it is so much fun to just see all these great character actors get to bounce off each other because i think literally every character actor alive Uh, in 1984 is in this
1: movie. (laughs) I think you may not be wrong. Uh, Yeah, I think (laughs) Jeff Jeff Goldblum is great. Uh, You know, he's a part of the ensemble here, but I think he's a very pivotal part um, because he's basically the audience point of view character. You know, he's the one who's being introduced to this insane world along with the rest of us and uh, kind of learning how to keep up with it. Uh, and stuff like that. So you have like funny moments where Jeff Goldblum's asking questions, and people are just like, "What are you? What are you asking about this for?" This is completely, you know. I think most famously, like uh, the the watermelon scene where he's walking, th- they're walking through the lab, uh, and there's like this machine that has a watermelon in the middle of it, uh, mm-hmm. and it's just like out of nowhere. And Jeff Goldblum's like, "Why is that watermelon there?" At perfect time, he's like, "I'll tell you later." And they never explain why the watermelon's there. <laughs>
2: Yeah, there's actually a very funny story uh, that W.D. Richter has in the in the documentary uh, about the watermelon and that they were trying to do or they were their original goal was to uh, I forget if it's. Uh, Buñuel or, or Bertolucci or something, Sorry, I forget. One of those like prestige European uh, directors sure. has a scene in a movie where two people are at a desk and the entire desk is just covered in walnuts for no reason. They never <laughs> acknowledge it. So they are driving on the on the uh, in Los Angeles and there is a fruit stand on the side of the road and they bought like thirty five watermelons and they were like, let's do the the walnut thing but with watermelons. And at this point in the production, uh, they had surmised uh, that uh, the Beagleman guy, the the executive guy, at the studio had given up on them and was no longer watching the dailies. Yeah. So they were like, "Okay, wait, let's call it. Let's point out the watermelon and see if he says anything." And uh, he never <laughs> mentioned that scene in the dailies and any any other meetings they have with him. So that was when they realized the studio wasn't paying attention anymore and they could do whatever they want. Uh, (laughs) So like, it's kind of there as a litmus test for the studio, but it's like the most distinctive scene in the whole movie, which is wild. (laughs) That's pretty great.
1: That's awesome. Cause it does like define the entire movie where it's just like you ask a question, they'll be like, Oh, we'll explain that later. And they don't, uh, and yeah. you just kind of have to go along with it. And that's kind of the whole idea behind Buckaroo of which is, which is pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, but Goldblum gets some funny lines, you know, he bounces off everyone really great. He's dressed like a cowboy for most of the movie. Uh, Like, Mm -hmm. what's what's not to love about that? You know, and again, he's not like the big like, I would say as far as screen time goes, he's not even in it like that much, I guess. But he's just like part of this gigantic ensemble of characters uh, that they've developed. But I think uh, especially at this point in his career, Goldblum's like a relatively well-known person. I think actually he's the in the credits, it says Peter Weller, you know, uh, Ellen Barkin, John Lithgow. And then I think the next one is and Jeff Goldblum. Uh, or, yeah. like, also starring Jeff Goldblum or whatever, and then, like, the rest of the cast. Like, so he's like the first build of like the second tier cast or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So at this point, you know, he's a relatively well known guy. So it, I think it helped having him be in this movie. Uh, and especially, I think having John Lithgow, I think John Lithgow is probably the biggest star of the movie at this point. And like of eight, 1984, John Lithgow's yeah. been in, I mean, it's the same year as Footloose, but he's been in like Brian De Palma movies. Like he was in Blowout and, you know, he's been in a few things up to this point. So he's probably the biggest star of everyone here. Um, But Jeff Goldblum might be the second biggest at this point. Cause Christopher Lloyd doesn't even have back to the future yet. That's next year. Yeah. Uh, a year after. So uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, it's a cool, like just man, kind of like, um, the big chill what we were talking about before, where it's like all these, or even the right stuff, like all these actors who are just at the very beginning of their careers, uh, who would go on to have like really long ones. It's kind of cool to see like just these huge ensembles uh of all these like recognizable faces that would be recon- like recognizable later on, basically.
2: Yeah, that's definitely part of the the charm to this movie is that it's kind of just all these people that uh and even I, I think now a lot of these actors are kind of like, oh, it's that guy. Uh like there's the the people with Christopher Lloyd. Uh, like that little trio. Uh, yeah. Other than Christopher Lloyd, it's kind of like, oh, it's that guy, uh, <laughs> yeah. And and it's a lot. It's a lot of fun. The the whole the whole spirit of this movie. Yeah, definitely. So, uh,
1: how how do you think this role fits into the roles that we've seen Jeff Goldblum play so far, Mike?
2: Uh, well, you know, I feel like Body Snatchers. Just in terms of like, that's kind of why he got hired. Like the you know, Debbie right. Richter, the connection there. Uh, so I feel like that's at least important to draw that line. Uh, but, I mean, it's got brain surgery, so threshold. So there's that. Hey, oh, except yeah. That, except that's heart surgery, but uh, surgery. Yeah, no, I, I didn't even put it together. You're right. Good job. <laughs> I mean, Goldblum's, yeah, his first scene is uh, this operation in the operating room. And I was like, oh, wait, it's threshold. Made a note. Uh, yep. We got we got uh, jet propulsion going to the eighth dimension, just like in the right stuff. Uh, yeah. <laughs> breaking the sound barrier. Like one of the first things that uh, they say in the movie is like, he's broken through the sound barrier. And that scene actually in the right stuff feels like it would be in this movie. Like the way that line is delivered in the right stuff. Uh, Right. (laughs) Feels like it's this from this movie, but otherwise I feel like it's kind of, it's kind of unique in in at least, uh, I mean, I guess the big chill too, uh, you know, in like you mentioned being just part of one of the guys in the ensemble kind of thing with this huge cast. Uh, But in terms of just like the role and the tone of this movie, it feels pretty unique uh, amongst the stuff we've seen so
1: far. I think you're right. I mean, there's not really a movie that's like Buck Ruben's Eye across the eighth dimension. There are <laughs> Just probably in cinema history. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> there are probably like similar, crazy, like out there sci-fi movies that we're not naming right now, but like Buckaroo Banzai is like a, a very unique thing unto itself. Like it just a, it doesn't exist in any plane of existence that we know about. Uh, it exists in the eighth dimension. Um, but exactly. yeah, I, I think <laughs> I mentioned the ensemble uh, stuff, too. And, you know, that dates back even before the big chill. I mean, Nashville was the same way between the lines. Thank God it's Friday, rehearsal for murder. That's like a big part of Jeff Goldblum, I feel like. Um, but but I think especially with the big chill, I, I mean, even between the lines and thank God it's Friday, he has a fairly substantial role within the ensemble. Um, yeah. But with like this movie and the big chill, it's like, oh, man, this is Jeff
2: Goldblum.
1: Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. I feel like uh, I feel like there's one scene uh, I'm sure we'll we'll get to in particular. That's like the standout Go- uh, other than the Watermelon, uh, like the standout uh, Goldblum scene where it's kind of like his moment to shine in the in the ensemble. And there's a you know, there's a couple scenes like that in. Yeah, uh, big chill like we use in our intro uh, when he's talking about uh, rationalization. Yes.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. So uh, speaking of, I mean, what are the scenes or moments to out to you? I'm assuming the scene you're talking about is the War of the Worlds scene. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah, OK. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they all have the same first name. John, 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 John. Somebody's playing games here. This is statistically impossible. Uh, I don't know. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Um, uh, November 1, October... Uh, 30 days have September, April, June, November, when short February done, all the rest have 31. October 31st. Halloween. Oh, um... Don't you get it? Orson Welles. You mean the guy from the old wine commercials? Uh, Halloween, 1938. uh, A War of the Worlds, that fake radio news broadcast that got everybody scared, thinking real live Martians. We're landing in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Then it all just turned out to be a hoax. So? So. Maybe uh, uh, it wasn't a hoax. Or, I mean, maybe it isn't a hoax.
2: Well, we get to watch Goldblum uh, you figure out the connection between why everyone's named John and the town where, all they, where they're all from and the date and then explain... Yep. <laughs> you know, with the kind of conspiracy red string uh, theory uh, to explain yes. that War of the Worlds actually happened. And they brainwashed Orson Welles into saying it was a radio hoax. And like that's I'm in love. Uh, sign me up. Yes. As, as soon as he came to that conclusion, I was like, what's uh, like, I see, like, it just
1: came out of nowhere and then like, you know, cuts away and then like to the next scene, they like, go deeper into it. And it's like, yes, this is this is great. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, that was perfect. Uh, Love that. So, uh, I mean, just starting from the beginning. I mean, we open with, you know, that Star Wars opening crawl, basically. Uh, and then, yeah. you know, we, we we're at we we're at a military station. They're beginning a test to breach the dimensions. But Buckaroo Ban's eyes nowhere to be seen and nobody knows where to find him. And he's performing surgery with Jeff Goldblum, like next door or <laughs> something. <laughs> yeah, you got to do a brain surgery real quick. Right. Got to do a quick brain surgery and then go break through the eighth dimension. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So he shows up, he leaves, he travels through a mountain, he enters the eighth dimension, uh, which is a pretty cool sequence. There's like, you know, you see like something like hanging on his car. There's like sort of like these weird beings that you later learn to be the lectroids or whatever. Mm -hmm. But at that point, they're just like these weird, like blue, like forms that are on his car. And this is like obviously like pre CGI. So it's like it doesn't look great, but it looks like it's charmingly cheesy like it looks like you know the 80s it looks like stuff that used to look like in the 80s basically
2: yeah i mean the shot the shot of him driving uh and you know you're looking out the windshield like over his shoulder and you're seeing all this weird imagery which yeah uh, in the uh, documentary explain (laughs) they knew somebody who was friends with somebody at like caltech or something or some or i forget exactly which college that had access to like some kind of electron microscope and they were able to film through the microscope and that's what the eighth dimension is So, Uh, like, that's kind of neat. But then that reverse shot, when you see the reflection in the visor on his helmet, I was like, this is the coolest fucking thing ever. We're five minutes into this movie. Hell, yes. (laughs) Uh, Plus, I mean, there's one shot where it is
1: like the car just going straight into the mountain and kind of disappearing. And it looks exactly like the DeLorean leaving in Back to the Future.
2: This uh, car has a has a flux capacitor in it. And then I found out now, I don't think literally, but there's a moment where they show like some device. I think it's the whatever MacGuffin they're chasing the whole movie. Yeah, uh, it looks exactly like a flux capacitor. And then really? I was like, oh, shit, the producer the next year produced <laughs> Back, Back to the, to the future. future. Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if they use the same like uh, special effects design possibly or company or whatever. Uh, but I thought that was a neat little thing. Yes, I am. I'm also glad that the producer did end up doing back to the
1: future a, a year later, which was a massive hit kind of like
2: yeah. <laughs> offset
1: the loss. Of At Bunker least somebody Bansai. succeeded. Exactly. So good for him. Um, but so Lithgo is watching all this on TV, right? And he, uh, he <laughs> flashes back to when he tried the same experiment Thirty years ago, and he failed, uh, and it shows him smashing into a wall, and the alien taking over his brain, uh, and Luthor's been, been in like a mental hospital ever since. And Jonathan Banks is like his <laughs> hospital guard, which he's he's still Mike thirty years earlier. I it's know so it's weird. the best. Uh, like <laughs> Jonathan Banks is one of those actors who, um, you know, he didn't get like a, a big role really. I mean, he was in a couple of things in like some semi-leading roles sometimes, but like. Until Breaking Bad, like when he played Mike Ehrmantrout, that was like the most significant role of his career. Uh, and, you know, he's much older in Breaking Bad than he is, but he's had been working since the early 80s. Uh, yeah. And so he's somebody who just pops up a lot in like old 80s movies like he's in Gremlins. Uh, as as one of the cops in that movie, he might be in Beverly Hills Cop, maybe like he he played like cops a lot and that kind of thing because that's the kind yeah. of like of course he did. He's Jonathan Bangs, you know. He's <laughs> just the, like he exudes that, you know. Yeah. Uh, which was actually it was pretty wild because I watched this and then the next day. I, uh, I watched Starship Troopers on Netflix, which turned out to be A, a pretty great Clancy Brown double feature. Didn't realize he was in both movies. Nice. Uh, and B, a pretty great surprise Breaking Bad actor double feature because Jonathan Banks was in this movie and Dean Norris, who plays Hank of Breaking Bad, is in Starship Troopers. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so, incredible uh plus they're both like you know big crazy sci-fi movies that are insane so there's that too yeah. um so it was it was actually a good pairing uh, i mean starship troopers a lot more violent a lot bloodier uh than than buckaroo Banzaï is which i think is a fairly family friendly movie uh, mm-hmm. but even so a good uh, a good pairing if anybody wants to do that double feature one day um uh, but yeah jonathan banks is the uh, lithgow's hospital guard or whatever and then you know we cut away from lithgow after we're introduced to him we had a rock show, bon- Banzai, uh, yeah. like the, the same day that he performed brain surgery and traveled to another dimension for the first time in human history. Uh, <laughs> rather than taking a break, <laughs> he, nope. he's at a nightclub in New Jersey and he's uh, playing with Buckaroo Banzai and the Hong Kong Cavaliers, which, by the way, the fact that they set this entire <laughs> Elaborate science fiction movie in New Jersey, uh, yeah, is also I think part of like the raggedy charm of this movie. It almost like it just feels like like you have the vast like this could have been like it took it could have taken place in the eighth dimension. It could have taken place like anywhere across
2: America. It took place in New Brunswick, like <laughs> yeah. I I just love that the the like implication that like New Jersey is so weird because it's just all aliens. Like <laughs> I love it. It's perfect. It's great uh, and. And actually, I mean,
1: speaking of, I mean, this movie was a huge influence on uh, on Kevin Smith, uh, probably not actually in his movies, because it's tough to actually like he makes you yeah. know, stoner comedies mostly. But uh, but he actually was attached to direct or like create a TV series based on Buckaroo Banzai a couple of years ago, uh, like in 2016 wow. or something like that. And I think I think it might have fell through. Like, I haven't heard anything about it since then. But just the fact that Kevin Smith's movies are also, you know, heavy New Jersey movies. Uh, yeah, you know, so going so far as one of them is it's literally called Jersey Girl. Uh, it's just it's kind of cool that like, the weird connection between Buckaroo Banzai and like the weird influence it's had, like I'm saying before, like it's just like yeah. the people who loved this movie back when they were kids really loved it. And those who went on to make movies like they all kind of credit it. Wes Anderson, sort of the same way, uh, where literally the ending of The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou is the ending of this movie. The, uh, the, walking, oh
2: God.
1: the walking to the, the music, like just kind of the whole group gathering yeah. together. Uh,
2: both both ensembles featuring Jeff Goldblum. He's in both of those. Yeah, <laughs> he's oh in my both of those
1: shots. I gotta write that wild. down
2: for when, for when we get to that movie and we do. Uh, what does this remind you of? Uh, <laughs> connections. <laughs> I gotta make sure I remember that. Yes, I gave you a freebie
1: for Steve Zissou down the line. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, so Bakuru Banzai, he's in the band. Uh, they're at the rock show. They're at this, uh, you know, big thing. They see Penny in the crowd and, uh, you know, Banzai looks Caesar and he addresses her directly from the stage. He's like, give her a mic and a spotlight, uh, you know, and she's like telling him, like this sad story and stuff. And, you know, Buckaroo Banzai, uh, there's uh, this one line that I've that I had heard from the movie before, which is in the scene, which says, no, no matter where you go, there you are. And. <laughs> <laughs> that's <laughs> yeah, that's it. Uh, and I think when I, cause I knew that line going into it and I expected that to be like part of a bigger scene, I guess, or like mm-hmm. a catchphrase that would happen throughout the movie. It's just in this one scene. Uh, and it's somehow like caught on <laughs> in like the buckaroo Banzai fandom or whatever it is. But yeah, it's a so pretty he, good,
2: like it's a pretty good mantra, you know?
1: Yeah, it's, it's nice. And it kind of like speaks to the entire like Zen mentality of buckaroo Banzai, who again is like depicted as the coolest person who, who ever lived. <laughs> right like, uh, but he's all he's all just like very chill about it and he has very humble and he listens to his teammates and stuff like that and he's just a just a good guy good old buckaroo Pensai <laughs> traveling across the eighth dimension
2: I do love the the kind of uh, like cap to that scene uh, where it's very dark that Penny tri- Penny tries to uh, shoot herself yeah. uh, but gets bumped by a waiter so she miss misses uh, but then all, all the Hong Kong Cavaliers have guns on them on stage yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> It was like an archer bit or something where it just like yes. whoosh, everyone's got guns out and it was hilarious. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was a bit in, uh, in Predator Two also. Uh, that was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know if you've seen. Have
1: you seen Predator Two? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. Actually, it's been a long time. Pre- I have. Predator Two was made in 1990, but it takes place in the dystopian future Los Angeles of 1996. <laughs> And <laughs> and there's a scene where uh, they're on like the subway and I think like somebody tries to mug somebody else and then everybody on the subway pulls out a gun. <laughs> That's absolutely incredible. It's uh yeah, it's pretty wild. But uh, Banzai got there first is is what we're is what we're saying. Yes. <laughs> Uh, like but most yes, things exactly yeah so so she yeah does try to shoot herself and it gets ends up getting like pulled out of the out of the club uh, then you cut back to Lazardo. he kills Jonathan Banks and uh, gets out of the hospital that's where he passes the Buckaroo Banzai video game that some kids are playing uh, and he's like blah mm-hmm. and then he <laughs> goes away <laughs> Uh, and then Jeff Goldblum joins the band. Like they, uh, like during the surgery scene earlier, they're talking, and uh, Buckaroo Banzai is like, "Oh, you know, might need a new opening. It's uh, one of these days. Like, you know, kind of come on through, whatever." Uh, and then yeah, Jeff Goldblum joins the band. He's dressed as a cowboy now, and they're all like, give, like razzing him a little bit, like, "Oh, you're dressed like a cowboy? Haha. Like, <laughs> you know, that kind your spurs? Thing. What's the name? How's
0: the paper? Oh, fine. He's doing fine, thanks to you. But more importantly, congratulations." You drove through a mountain. I did. You drove right through a mountain the other day. You did it right after you left me with the operation. You hadn't even said anything about it. Didn't even uh, mention you were going to do Sidney, it. Sydney, these are my friends. This is my colleague, Dr. Sydney Zweibel, old medical friend from Columbia PS. Howdy, howdy there. Listen, Sydney, I'm glad you could make it because it looks like we may need an extra hand sooner than I thought. Aha! Uh-huh, I see an extra hand. Yeah, that's what I was wondering about. I mean, I got your message about rendezvousing at this address. Barely had time to pack my saddlebags. Then I came here, and I, I mean... could see that. Uh. Well, I'm going to snoop around. Make yourself at home. Okay. Uh, you know, I thought we were going to rehearse or something. Uh, you know, I'm a big fan of all you guys. I love the comic books and the records. I know you. You're Pecos. Perfect Tommy. Perfect Tommy? I'm sorry. You're you Pecos. Uh, uh, Pecos in Tibet. <laughs> Name's Reno. Reno. It's an honor. Where do you Real. hail from, Doc? Uh, New Jersey. Fort Lee. Uh, where are your spurs at? <laughs> What's he making fun of me?
1: yeah where's your spurs uh, where do you come from and he's like new jersey and it's like oh we're, should we call you new jersey and goldblum's like oh you're making fun of me <laughs> like they, he's, <laughs> he's 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 one of the gang it's great but this is like your first like before when you see jeff goldblum he is like surgical gear you, you don't really like see his face you just hear his voice kind of thing uh and you see his eyes like yeah. through his mask and stuff but you don't really like see a get a good look at him uh so this is kind of your first glimpse of jeff goldblum in the movie where it's just full-on cowboy outfit which is great
2: yeah I, I just love uh, the idea that he would, like, you know, completely misunderstand what that one, what the Hong Kong Cavaliers are, and two, yes. like, what Buckaroo Banzai was asking him. <laughs> so that he thinks, like, I got to be there in my, like, superhero costume. Uh, it's really <laughs> <interesting>. <laughs> It's the best.
1: Uh, but yeah, so Goldblum joins the band. Uh, Banzai visits Penny in jail, uh, and she joins along on the crew, they like let her out of jail, and he just like, all right, you're part of the crew now, I guess. Uh, she's like part of the press mm-hmm. conference where they're talking about the Eighth Dimension for some reason. <laughs> yeah. So that's a, that's a part of it too. They have like a big press conference with the Secretary of Defense. Uh, and then the president calls or they think the president's calling uh, and Banzai leaves to go take it uh, on a pay phone. And the a- the aliens like zoo is like a little zap through the phone. And it allows <laughs> him to see that the secret aliens that are in the crowd, uh, which were Dan Hedaya and Vincent Chiavelli, uh the guy from Cheers and uh, next up Greenwich Village. Uh, so they yep. <laughs> they are revealed to be aliens. And now Buckaroo has like the ability to see that basically like they're like, these are aliens that are able to disguise themselves in human form or whatever, like, like they're, they're doing a secret wars. Yeah. Kind of doing a secret wars. They're scrolls. They are essentially scrolls. <laughs> you're right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but they're also like, like, it doesn't seem like they're like human disguises. Cause they're like, they actually just are that also. Cause part of the thing, John Lithgow's character is like space Hitler um they even like say that at one point in the movie uh and then you know uh john parker carl lumley's character uh who is also an alien he's black and he says something like you know that he's they're against black people or something like they don't want black people on their planet it's like a racism thing uh yeah
2: (laughs) well it's it's like yeah no it's it's very strange and i picked up on that and was like i'm not sure how i feel about how this is handling all of this uh or, or at least especially how this hits in 2020 not that it's racist or anything uh, but for it to be, like, about that. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, like, it's,
1: try, it's trying to juggle so many things. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like maybe leave this out of your silly space movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that is an element of it. But it, So, it does, like, make it, like, odd, because all the aliens look the same. Like, as far as, like, you know, the alien masks and stuff. Um, yeah. Like, when they're actually in alien form, they all look basically the same. Uh, but then in their human form, they look different. So, it's like, do they spend a lot of time in their human form when they're on their planet? Is that, like, I, I don't know.
2: <laughs> do yeah. Think? And are they actually in human form, or is it just, like, some weird thing we can't see? Yeah. It's very strange. Exactly. So there's a lot of stuff going on here. You go, you go with it. You know, why is the watermelon
1: there? And you, you keep going. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll tell you later. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, they revealed to be aliens. Bonsai steals a motorcycle. There's a big chase. Uh, and meanwhile, some hunters find a dead alien and a buckaroo Bonsai comic book. <laughs> That's published <laughs> yeah. by Marvel. They, you know, the chase kind of ends. They get away. Hidea uh, and Shivelli they meet up with Christopher Lloyd. Uh, who is also an alien and uh, they investigate the scene and, you know, Christopher Lloyd punches someone. It's great. Uh, Just like a straight out Christopher Lloyd punch to one of the hunters. I think it is. Uh, Yeah. It's really fun. And then Buckaroo Banzai is saved by uh, the kid and his dad uh, who are part of the crew now. Also like everybody who helps out Buckaroo Banzai on the quest just joins up with the crew. They're part of it now. (laughs)
2: Yeah. I'd love that idea. I think, I think there were the blue jackets or something like that, which is this like, civilian like you said like buckaroo bonsai boy scouts where it's just like yeah. we could sign up and be part of the, the group and it's amazing i just love that idea there's a surprising <laughs> amount of in-depth world building in this fucking dumbass movie um <laughs> but it's you know, like, i don't get why this movie goes to such great i mean i do get it but it goes through such great lengths to right. establish all this really Cool stuff. It's wild. How does this movie exist, Like Is the real. I have. Like, I. I was just kind of sitting there, like kind of stunned into
1: submission, like by, <laughs> by this. Movie. Every scene. Every scene is like, how how did this happen? How did the studio let this happen in 1984? Uh, And the only conclusion I could come to was that, like, you know, they just really wanted a Star Wars esque big space adventure movie. And this is really a space adventure movie because, again, it mostly takes place in New Jersey. Um, (laughs) But even so, it has like elements of that uh, elements of a lot of other different things, too. I could see like on paper being like, well, if we take Star Wars, but we also take Prince uh and we also yeah. take and we also take, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark and James Bond and we kind of mash it all together. People will like that, right? And like, <laughs> yeah, and, and then uh, it opens at 19th place at the box office and you're like, hey.
2: <laughs> but it's pretty weird if you combine those movies you mentioned that were also in the top 10 uh, that weekend all into one movie. You do get the, the number 19 movie. It's very strange. <laughs> yeah,
1: you're right. I think if people... <laughs> If people in the 80s wanted to save money and they'd be like, well, Ghostbusters looks good. Karate Kid looks good. Gremlins looks (laughs) good. You know what? Bunker Banzai, it's all of them. I'll just go see that. And And Purple Rain. And Purple Rain also. Yeah, right. But yeah, so he's saved by the kid and his dad. They're part of the crew now. That's when uh, Goldblum poses the theory that Orson Welles' radio broadcast of War of the Worlds wasn't a hoax after all and that lectroids from planet 10 uh hypnotized <laughs> orson wells
2: into pretending that it was a hoax uh which is i like love pro- every uh. name and in, in this movie the lectroids <laughs> from planet 10
1: yes it's a, it sounds like something that would be made up in like you know a cutaway panel of a calvin and Hobbes comic right exactly you know? <laughs> Uh, but it's the whole movie. It's great. It's all that's all this is. Um but then then they finally get back to the lab, Buck Banzai returns. Uh, and they get a message from uh, John M doll who is a woman uh, and it's played by the uh, the woman from uh, Omega man whose name I have up in my copy but I, I don't want to find it right now uh, but she, she, but uh, it's, and she's not in that much the movie she kind of has like this big message at the beginning and then kind of pops up again at the end um, but again all the aliens are named John uh, no matter yes. what. and some of them are like joke names and some of them are actual names too uh, which they point out in the movie you know they they said they're like analyzing it and it's like like well, some of these must be jokes. Like you know, John Big Booty, uh, John like Little Nuggets or whatever it was. Like, <laughs> I forget yeah. Exactly. Uh, and then others are like just like they John sound, Parker or John O'Connor.
2: They sound like the fake names that the in the uh, Mystery Science Theater in the I think it's Laser Blast episode oh. with all the fake like Blast Hard Cheese and yes. Roll Fizzle Beef. Like <laughs> they sound like those names. And they're perfect. Yes.
1: big. McLaren's huge. Uh, so so they get the message from John M. Dahl, and she basically runs down the situation, right? That uh, Lithgow is space Hitler, essentially, and kind of tells them, like, here's what's going to happen is like, you know, he escaped from our planet, and we don't want him back on our planet <laughs> because he is space yeah. Hitler. Uh, and so if he uh, starts approaching our planet, we are going to uh, send a strike to Russia on your planet, which will ignite the Cold War. Uh, on Earth and basically destroy all life on the planet. Right Uh, is is basically like the rundown of what she says. So this is not this is not only all the things we mentioned before. It's also a Cold War thriller. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, which makes sense. It's 1984. you know, th- that's a big part of the like 80s pop culture and stuff. But uh, yeah, so that that's now an element in play that they have to kill John Lithgow uh, or else the entire planet will be doomed. Uh, not even because of him, but because the aliens don't want him back in the planet. So if they don't, Kill him first. They're not going to let him die on the planet by destroying Earth. Essentially, right. (laughs) At the same time, Buckaroo Banzai reveals that his dead ex-wife may have been Penny's twin sister uh, because Penny was adopted. So that's like an element of it too. That really doesn't factor Mm -hmm. in that much in the movie. Uh, I'm not even necessarily sure why it's there, uh, other than just like "Eh, it's an extra thing that we can do. And this movie has everything. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, you got to have a romantic plot. So, (laughs) right, exactly. so that's that's part of it too. Um, but their lab gets invaded by like the aliens and stuff, and a guy named Sam is killed. Uh, and I don't I, I don't even know who Sam was. Like I, there's so many characters. <laughs> I was like, oh no, Sam. And I was like, wait, who? <laughs> uh, I don't even but, so remember. So they're that. yeah they're defending the lab. Goldblum uh, holds his gun wrong, and that's when he asks why the watermelon is there. He, they're, when they're passing through the room uh, and stuff, and uh, while they're defending the lab, that's when Rawhide is hit. And Rawhide was great. A big fan of Rawhide. Right. <laughs> In the movie. And uh, so he he dies. So what do you think of Clancy Brown's big, uh, big death scene in the movie, Mike?
2: Uh, I mean, it was pretty strange because there's this kind of thing like as he's dying, like everyone's like turning away in shock. And it almost looks like that. Some we were supposed to see something. Uh, but then they, like, cut back to Rawhide, and he just kind of does the, like, uh, and dies. Um, uh, so, but I don't know. It just felt like there was something cut out of that that we were supposed to be reacting to. Uh, but otherwise, like, it was real sad, man. I love Rawhide. Rawhide's great. Clancy Brown's great. Uh, I'm sad that yeah. he's the one
1: that has to die. Yeah, it was it was a shame. But uh, Rawhide dies and John Parker ends up joining the group. John Parker is the good alien who wants to help them. He's played by Carl Lumley, who is uh, he was in the ship that I think the hunters found. Right. And he kind of makes his way out of there and tries to warn Buckaroo Banzai about what's going down. He's the one that brings in the message that uh, John M. Dahl gives them, basically. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so after that, we cut to the president uh, who is in like this giant back brace wheel thing. For some reason, uh, that's just a weird extra detail yeah. the president has back problems, I guess. But yeah, that, that's wild. And so the defense secretary is, you know, telling him, like, we can't trust Buckaroo Banzai. And he's like, yes, we can. And Yakov Smirnov is there. I, I don't even I completely <laughs> lost the thread of what I was even talking about because there's so much stuff I need to like mention.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's um, another great little uh, thing. This is why you got to watch the special features on your Blu-rays, uh, folks. Uh, They talked about that, about the president uh, and how uh, the actor did a Orson Welles impression (laughs) like the time and uh, the studio executive guy that sucked made them redub his lines (laughs) like with (laughs) a different actor. (laughs) <laughs> they were like, "No, this is bullshit," uh, which would have, you know, makes sense with the whole Orson Welles War of the Worlds plot point. Um, yeah, it's like a fun little bit, but yeah, they made them get rid of it, which sucks. So that's that is the
1: whole thing, and then uh, Lithgow has kidnapped Penny basically after the whole lab thing. They they discover that Lithgo kidnapped her to make her talk, and you know that's when he's saying things like "the miserable animals of the earth" or that kind of thing. Like he's just talking this like this gigantic, <laughs> distorted voice saying like ridiculous things, and it's great. Uh, the president uh, is worried that russia is going to strike or there's like a something going on where they think russia's about to attack them in the in the cold war uh, and so he pulls out, out of this desk declaration of war the short form and it's just like that's like the short form yes it's great not even like a full pamphlet just like <laughs> it's a one sheet piece of paper <laughs> Uh, which was <laughs> pretty it. great. But so they they make their way to Lazardo's hideout, right? And uh, Lizardo captures and tortures Buckaroo Banzai for a bit. But he eventually escapes. And then, uh, you know, it's the whole group kind of all throughout the hideout, trying to figure out where Penny is and how they can defeat them and stuff. Uh, Buckaroo Banzai finds Goldbloom. They travel together. Uh, and then meanwhile, the defense secretary is snooping around that Hideout also because he wants the tech for the U.S. government to break into the eighth dimension. Christopher Lloyd seemingly kills him and places a slug next to Penny uh, when which begins like advancing on her. And it's like, oh, man. And then it gets her. Buck <laughs> Banzai and Goldblum find her. And Goldblum stays with her to take care of her while Bonsai advances to the next level. Because at this point, it's a video game, yeah. Basically. <laughs> uh, and that's when uh, Lazardo kills Christopher Lloyd. Also, I think it's I think they must have killed Dan Hedaya at some point too. Uh, the guy from Cheers. Eventually, he disappears, but I don't remember a scene where he dies. <laughs> uh, Christopher Lloyd? No, uh, I mean Christopher Lloyd does like there's a scene where he dies, but I'm, t- I'm talking about uh, Dan Hedaya. Uh, one of the uh, the henchmen guys like one of the trio like there's it's him oh, and Vince Chivelli yeah, yeah. and Christopher Lloyd and Dan Hidea. I don't remember a scene where he dies and maybe it's just because there's so much going on that I forgot about it but I at some point he just kind of disappears uh, do you remember like a scene where they show Dan Hidea like just dying or anything
2: uh not off the top of my head but I think okay. it's because of like what you said <laughs> at this point uh there's just so much happening yeah <laughs>
1: Fair enough, but uh, but Lazardo does kill Christopher Lloyd, uh, who keeps telling him his plan's not going to work. The ship doesn't have enough juice or whatever it is. Uh, you know he keeps correcting him like, not now, big booty. It's big booty, damn it. And you know that <laughs> that kind of thing, which is very funny. And then Lazardo kills Christopher Lloyd, R I V. It's very sad. But then yeah, Banzai and uh, John Parker they stow away on Lazardo's spaceship. Uh, and he ejects the two of them off into their own small pod. Uh, Banzai gets to Lozardo's ship and causes it to explode. So Lozardo dies and he parachutes back down to Earth. Uh, <laughs> what you, would what'd you think of that whole like big climax, Mike?
2: I mean, uh, it's great. You can like I just love that you can tell like that is very clearly like a projection out the front of the, <laughs> the windshield that they're like yep. reacting to or a green screen or whatever the technology was in 1984. Uh, and, and the whole bit like where Banzai is able to fly the alien ship better than John Parker, who's actually an alien. Uh, like, and he just is you know, like, Oh, well this is a laser. You take the wheel. And like, they figure out all the stuff and they blow it up. It's great. I mean, it's yeah. what, what, do you expect? Like, you know, <laughs> At this point, an hour and an hour and 45 minutes into this movie, my expectations have been recalibrated to love every second of this movie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: fair enough. So, so, yeah, Buckaroo Banzai, he saves the day and uh, he comes back to Earth, uh, checks on Penny, who is still unconscious last time he saw her. uh, And it turns out Goldblum couldn't save Penny. Uh, She dies. Right. And he's in the he's in the trailer. And that's like. Or does she because <laughs> Buckaroo mm-hmm. Banzai goes and like, give her one last kiss. And then I guess the aliens give like like the good aliens, they give Banzai like another spark in his lips or whatever, and it restores her back to health. She like comes back to life. Uh, and it's a very nice, touching moment to end the movie on. And then it teases a sequel. <laughs> this movie had the gall yeah. to tease a sequel called Buckaroo Banzai Against the World Crime League. Obviously, that sequel did not happen because this movie opened at 19th place <laughs> in the box office. <laughs> um, it it kind of reminds me of the see, end. Of, really? Yeah. It, it kind of reminded me of the end of a history of the world. Part one. Actually, the uh, <laughs> words, <at> the end, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, uh, coming up history of the world. Part two. <laughs> Hitler on ice. Yeah.
2: Uh, <laughs>
1: So it was It was kind of funny to see that, and it just made me sad that that sequel didn't actually exist. Like, I want it in my life somewhere. I really <laughs> wish that that uh, that sequel had come out. That would have been so much fun. But unfortunately, all we got is the original movie, which is enough on its own. I mean, there's so much stuff in there that you can probably just watch it a million times and still find something new every single time. Uh, and then... It teases the sequel, and then you get one of the best end credit sequences ever. As uh, as Buck Rubans and his team, they all gather together and march to that just really fun theme music that goes like
2: boo-boo-boo-boo doo 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 do do do. It's great. Uh, yeah, that's the absolutely the best end credit scene. Uh every single movie should feature the entire cast marching at the end of the <laughs> end credits. Uh, I don't know why they did they, that's not a thing. Uh, right. And another fun fact, they didn't have the score yet uh, when they filmed that and they were marching to Uptown Girl. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that is fantastic. I, like now, I'm sure there's got to be some kind of edit
1: on YouTube or something where they where they swap out the theme music and put in Uptown Girl as they <laughs> they must. It's, it's got to exist. But yeah, so that that end credit sequence happens and then. The movie's over because that's what happens when end credit sequences show up in the movie. So uh, so that wraps up the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. Mike, any other stuff in the movie that you wanted to throw out there? Talk about before we move on to letterbox reviews?
2: Um, No, I just kind of I wish movies like this could happen now um, where it's kind of only like tentpool blockbuster movies or tiny little like indie horror movies (laughs) or like, you know, tiny little indie things. Uh, there's, there's no more room for that kind of like mid budget wacky sci-fi movie. Uh, and I wish there
1: was. Yeah. I mean, I, I wish that, uh, movies like Buckaroo Banzai could happen more often, but I mean, it is also the kind of movie that really only happens like once in a generation, uh, just the
2: kind this kind of <laughs> yeah. like insane thing. I guess it tracks that it opened at, uh, you know, 19th. So I guess of course they didn't bother making more movies like this. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but if only, you know. If only. Uh, but anyway, so that that is the adventures
1: of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension, which was a first time watch for both of us and we both really, really enjoyed. So if anybody hasn't seen it out there, give it a shot. It's really good. And the Shout Factory Blu-ray is really, really nice. Uh, we both bought that like a while ago during like a half off sale. Uh, worth it for sure. All right. So let's uh, move yeah. on to some letter letterbox reviews. Uh, here's a five star review from uh, Evan Pincus, which reads, Almost a quarter of a century later, indie darling Primer would make a name for itself by stuffing a script full of impenetrable jargon. All the way back in 1984, <laughs> Buckaroo Banzai was ahead of the curve by miles. Seriously, practically every single word spoken here requires context that nobody could possibly have. <laughs> it's totally <laughs> overwhelming. But it's one hell of a jet car ride. MGM is an organization of monkey boys for not getting this a sequel ASAP. <laughs> uh, here's a two and a half star review from uh, Jeffrey Overstreet, which reads If you were to time travel to 1984, enter a video arcade, find the kid playing Space Invaders, and then at that very moment that Billy Idol's rebel yell transitions into Prince's let's go crazy on the arcade speakers, you injected him with adrenaline and filled his mouth with Zot's Pop Rocks and told him to improvise the plot for his dream movie? This is exactly what he would describe. <laughs> 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 Which, uh, yeah, I think it's a good it way. Really it really does feel like that. Yeah, I think it's a good way to put it, even if it is like a two and a half star review. Uh, Here's a four star (laughs) review from uh, JTM, which reads the best anime. (laughs) Zero idea. (laughs) Zero idea to just how this produces such a consistent flow of intense and unique charm. The gags don't build, the characters never change, and the climax is sudden and brief. Yet it makes for such lovely company, with its ditzy production design and soda pop consistency. There isn't a single joke to be in on. The Backyardigans Boogie simply presents a band of ragtag rock stars who are experts at everything, matches them with an unfathomably watchable nonsense villain, and lets their battle for the fate of the world play out across muted set pieces and mannered comedic beats inexplicably it works minute to minute scene to scene. And then the characters celebrate their victory by forming a private parade during the credits. And I'm left wondering where the time went. Even those who lost their lives in the battle return for the curtain call consequences of narrative won't get in the way of commemorating teamwork. (laughs) Understandably (laughs) off putting to so many viewers. And while the movie seems constantly considerate of the audience's investment is someone out there not having a good time. The film helplessly continues to be itself. Conversion is impossible. You're either on board and grooving with a beat or holding a pistol to your head.
2: Um, <laughs> oh my God.
1: Yeah. So that's uh, that's from JTM, a four star review. I got one more. It's a four star review from Ellen Marie, which reads Can't believe I never watched this. It's been on my watch list forever. This movie is super fun and it has the best cast. If you ever wanted to see Jeff Goldblum in head to toe cowboy get up saying, Why is there a watermelon there? And you do, watch this movie. <laughs> Also, perfect Tommy's wardrobe (laughs) is on point, and I'm 87 percent sure Peter Weller is Adam Ant. (laughs) So there you go. Some letterbox reviews for the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai across the eighth dimension. And I believe that's going to take us to the end of this week's episode. So, Mike, where can we find you online this week?
2: Uh, Real quick, uh, because I forgot to mention it My one one complaint. There's only one negative, and that's uh, that Ellen Barkin gets nothing to do other than be hot and be rescued. Which she does great. She's amazing at both of those things. Uh, I just yeah. wish she was uh, in more involved because uh, her character seems really cool, and that's all. <laughs> uh, but you can find me. Uh, you can find me online at MD Film Blog on Twitter and Letterboxd. Yeah, I'm sort of with you
1: on the Ellen Barkin thing. I think she is good in the movie, but it is like one of those things where it's like there's again, there's so much stuff into the movie. It's like tough to imagine what else they would do with Ellen Barkin's character. And I and I would imagine maybe she would even have a bigger role in the sequel uh, if that ever got made. Um, Right. But uh, obviously that didn't happen. So, yeah, as as it is, her character does feel very underwritten in the movie, especially considering they kind of set up this whole backstory where she was like the twin sister of Buckaroo Banzai's dead ex-wife or something. Like you would think there'd be more to it than just like, you know, one scene where they talk about that. Um, but you can uh, you can find me online at uh, M. Smith film blog on Twitter, Mike Smith, film on Letterboxd and Radio Mike Sandwich on Instagram. Uh, thanks so much for listening to The Complete Works. Uh, I'm Mike Smith. That's my show. Don't forget to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast app. And if you want to contact us, hit us up at Jeff Goldblum Complete Works at gmail.com. You can find the rest of our podcast on Rapture Press alongside the Review Zoo, a podcast about comic books and movie news. Nope, that podcast is over alongside B2. Uh, <laughs> 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 the uh, totally original geek news podcast. That's the new one that you should be following right there. Also a good source for all that nerdy stuff that I mentioned for the review zoo. And uh, you can follow this podcast on Twitter at Go uh, Our theme song was created by Kyle Cullen, who you can reach for your own podcast themes at Kyle's podcast themes at gmail.com. And our logo was designed by Jacob Honeycutt or at Jacob Honey. On Twitter now. Join us next week on the Complete Works, where Goldblum gets a starring role with Michelle Pfeiffer in John Landis's 1985 comedy thriller *Into the Night*, which uh, I have not seen. Heard kind of negative things about, Uh, but if you look at the cast list, maybe don't even look at the cast list because there are so many cameos from different directors and character actors and stuff uh i think it's gonna be really fun spotting those and uh, t- talking about them uh yeah. next week so uh yeah doing that one into the night from 1985 and keep listening for our bonus episodes of mike and mike go to the movies thanks so much for listening guys and remember to go for the gold bloom